please welcome Henry Hello again, everyone. What a good crowd this morning for Sunday school. And I might add a good-looking crowd. (laughs) Nothing like ingratiating yourself to the audience before you speak, particularly when they've just been asked to write checks. So (laughs) take that as you will. Doug has asked me to uh, deliver uh, the same talk and message that I delivered at our CCL Symposium in San Francisco a few weeks ago. He and Melinda came out, and we had a, just a great time. So it's his request that I'm doing this. If it is a disappointment to you, therefore, then uh, you can lay the blame on, on Doug. Um, my topic this morning uh, sounds perhaps a little odd. I hope you won't think that it's odd when I finish. It's called Deep culture, deep culture. I'd like to begin by reading Luke chapter 9 and verse 26. Luke 9, 26. And this is a passage that those of you that have been in church for a while would be quite familiar with, I'm sure. As you're turning there, I want to mention some messages expound a text uh, at the beginning uh, mention a text and then an expounder, but this message is going to build up to an explanation of the text. Luke chapter 9, verse 26. <clears throat> Jesus is speaking, and he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. I'm starting today with something akin to a lecture, but then building up at the end to a sermon. So this is a lecture that transitions into a sermon. Um, Some of you have heard the term deep state before. How many of you have heard this expression, deep state? A couple weeks ago, I got this in the mail from a Uh, conservative group. I'm on a number of conservative mailing lists. I don't know how well you can see it, but it's advertising a new book. (coughs) Here's our president, and the title of the book is Killing the Deep State. Killing the Deep State. Now here's how the author defines deep state. A clandestine network entrenched inside the government that controls state policy behind the scenes, while elected officials are merely figureheads. Now, conspiracy theory aside, this really isn't a new idea. For several decades, Americans have known their deeply entrenched government bureaucrats. You were aware of that, right? (laughs) Doesn't matter which political party's in power, they do what's necessary to keep their jobs. And there's also no doubt many of them have their own idea about what the government policy should be. And they use what influence they have to create and sustain that policy. Now, there's nothing particularly conspiratorial about that. That's simply human nature. And there's no doubt that it often undermines elected government. That's really simply to say sinful people in power enjoy wielding power in sinful ways. 
Now, the problem, I believe, is in assuming that the deep state is somehow the most deeply and dangerously entrenched power that we need to overturn. It isn't. The deepest danger isn't the deep state, but deep culture. Deep culture is deeper than the deep state. It has a greater impact on our lives. It shapes how we think and how we act. Deep culture can go where the deep state can't. So what is this deep culture? Deep culture is the web of assumptions so deeply entrenched in a society that people don't even think about them. They're not matters of discussion or debate. Perhaps you've heard the the Chinese proverb, if you want a definition of water, don't ask a fish. Uh, A sociologist, quite well-known, Peter Berger, calls this a society's, and here's an expression you might want to write down or remember, plausibility structure. Plausibility structure. It's kind of long, but it's not hard to understand. He writes, the fundamental coerciveness of society lies not in its machineries of social control, but its power to constitute and impose itself as reality. You see, every society shapes what's considered real. Every society shapes world construction or engages in world construction. That's the plausibility structure. Now, let me give you a metaphor. Um, a plausibility structure is like a, like a football field. It establishes the boundaries of the game. If you go outside the sidelines or outside the end zone, you're no longer a part of the game. The plausibility structure decides what's allowed in the game of society. In Western society, an example is the evil of slavery. For instance, if an elected federal representative stood on the floor of Congress in the next few weeks, and passionately advocated legislation, reinstituting slavery, he wouldn't be met with logical arguments. There wouldn't be special programs on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, large editorials in the Washington Post. He'd just be expelled from the party and forced to resign. Laugh right out of public life. He'd be permanently disgraced. The idea that Americans could own other people as they own a car or own a house, isn't simply considered evil. It's just unthinkable. It's not a part of our plausibility structure. Now, I've chosen slavery for a particular reason, to show that plausibility structures change over time. 160 years ago, um, the evil of slavery wasn't a part of America's plausibility structure. Thoughtful, educated, moral people marshaled arguments both defending slavery and opposing slavery. You can go back and read what they said. The argument over slavery was a part of the social game. It was a legitimate social argument. Eventually, that game became a war. Gradually, And fortunately, the argument over slavery drifted out of the plausibility structure. Nobody argues about it now. Now let me take a different example. The legalization of marijuana. Mm, That's a little different. That's not a part of our plausibility structure. 
Let's say a libertarian congressman were to propose legislation decriminalizing marijuana in all states. And let's suppose there were a strong minority, at least, supporting it. He'd have a fight on his hands, wouldn't he? CNN and Fox and MSNBC would devote entire programs to arguing it for and against. They'd invite experts to present reasoned cases. Why? Because the argument is a part of our plausibility structure. This is a hot issue. Marijuana decriminalization is a topic that is allowed on the playing field. Slavery is not. Deep culture is how the plausibility structure works its way into a society. The ideas are taken for granted, and the culture reflects those ideas. It doesn't argue for those ideas. It doesn't have to argue for them. The fish doesn't argue about the meaning of water. It takes it for granted. It's a part of its entire environment. Now, we in our society, in Western culture, in the midst of a massive plausibility structure shift... That shift centers in radical human autonomy. It's basically this. In previous civilizations and in previous cultures, humanity was expected to conform to external standards, standards that were given. In the ancient world, it might have been the emperor's word or the pharaoh's word in Egypt. It could have been the wishes of the gods, small g, in pagan societies. To the Greeks and Romans, it was the ideal world of the eternal forms, like Plato believed. Some of you have studied maybe Plato in college, you know what I'm talking about. To the ancient Hebrews, it was the written law of God. Far superior standard, of course. Our Christian predecessors agreed with the Hebrews on that. They often added to it natural law, seen in the context of Christianity. This was the plausibility structure of Western civilization. It created a deep culture. There weren't people who assumed that they could devise their own rules that everybody else had to respect. There weren't people like that. And if they were, they were considered insane. The rules of the universe and society are discovered, not invented. Now, from the late 1600s... We've shifted gradually from God-centered civilization, not perfect civilization by any means, but God-centered, to man-centered. In time, this came to mean man, not in a universal sense, that's what the Enlightenment had taught, but humans as individuals, as the Romantics taught and as postmodernists teach, invent and are the center of everything. It means today that you're the captain of your own ship. It means that nobody dare interfere with your own desires. It means you make up your own morals, your own rules. Increasingly, it means you create and live within your own reality. There are no universally shared rules, no universally shared morality, no universally shared reality. In no way is this autonomy more graphically exhibited than in sex. Sex now is a creational norm given by God inherent in the human condition. To be human is to be sexual. Therefore, when humans rebel against God, they rebel in their sexuality. Now, in our times, that rebellion isn't just breaking his sexual 
laws. That's been going on since the fall. Rather, it's creating an entire plausibility structure for ignoring and opposing them. We've shifted from a culture that respected God's sexual laws to one in which those laws aren't even a part of life. Now let me illustrate this shift. Get very pointed here. Increasingly, Christian colleges are revising their behavioral codes to permit what they call same-sex romantic relationships. Two main factors are driving these changes. First, regional accrediting agencies are including sexual non-discrimination policies as part of their requirements. If a college discriminates against homosexuality, they could lose their accreditation and their reputation and their money and their students. That's the legal side. Then there's the existential factor. More and more young adults, even tragically Christian young adults, believe in radical sexual autonomy. It's everybody's choice as to what their sexual orientation will be. Nobody has a right to say what sex you are. You get to decide. Now, what I find fascinating is how the Christian colleges who don't change, who don't change their biblical behavioral codes, have expressed their rationale for not changing. Follow me there. Their language tends to be so cautious, so careful, so timid. Recently, the administration of a large Christian college in Southern California, some of you may have heard of it, Azusa Pacific University, changed its standards of conduct to permit romantic same-sex relationships. Fortunately, the board later met and countermanded that decision. I don't care what the administration says. We're going to go by what the Bible says. However, listen to the rationale of the board for reversing back to the biblical position. So this is quoted in the San Gabriel Valley Tribune. Albert, I'm quoting now, Albert Tate, a member of the board, said that the board was still considering, still considering new language for the standards of conduct. Quote, when we took out the language, he means this unbiblical administrative view, everyone else filled that gap with their own language and interpretations, and it was hurtful to LGBTQ students, our faculty, and constituencies outside, closed quote. Quote, we reinstated that language with the intention to strategically partner with our LGBTQ students to find the best language possible to capture our heart and intent, closed quote. That's extraordinary language and unprecedented. Can you imagine any board member of any Christian college 50 or even 15 years ago, using such language to justify, to justify a biblical code of conduct? No, that have simply said the Bible teaches homosexuality is a sin. We therefore forbid it on our campus. Case closed. In fact, it's doubtful that even need to make such a statement. Homosexuality wasn't pervasive, certainly not publicly, and it wasn't a social issue. Note that Mr. Tate is formally advocating the biblical view. But the language he feels obliged to use reflects a shifting plausibility structure. He can't use the older biblical language. You see, the Bible hasn't changed, but the plausibility structure has changed. Now, radical sexual autonomy is just one prominent example. I'll just mention briefly some more before I get to the preaching part. 
Other examples include sexual egalitarianism. Men and women are virtually interchangeable. Talking about insanity, that's insanity. Two, multiculturalism. All cultures are equally valid, and one is not superior to another. An Aborigines uh, tribal dance is just as beautiful as Bach. Or political soteriology, salvation doctrine. That is, the solution to all social problems is found in political legislation. Or the universalization of informality. Formal titles and formal language and formal clothing and formal occasions are hierarchical and snobby. Our language with almost everybody should be intimate and familiar and coarse. Never use the expressions Mr. or Mrs. Flip-flops and jeans are acceptable attire just about anywhere. These are examples of changed plausibility structures. Now what must be our Christian response to this changed plausibility structure? Here comes the sermon. Are you ready? I suggest this program, and it's one you might want to write down or at least remember. We, as God's people, must denormalize godless plausibility structures and renormalize godly plausibility structures. I'm going to repeat that. We must denormalize godless plausibility structures and renormalize godly plausibility structures. Plausibility structures define what's normal in society. Today, premarital sex is normal. Public education is, government education is normal. Pornography is normal. Judicial activism is normal. Government-financed health care is normal. Their opposites or alternatives are considered abnormal. What our apostate world deems normal is actually abnormal in God's sight. And what God considers normal is bizarre in our apostate culture's sight. David Wells, several years ago, wrote something that I'll never forget. Somebody asked, how do you define worldliness? What does it mean to be worldly? He writes this, worldliness is whatever makes sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. Worldliness is whatever makes sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. Premarital virginity seems strange today. Non-married virgins are exposed to ridicule. Premarital sexual promiscuity is the norm. The notions also that individuals, families are responsible for their own health care and education and retirement and old age is strange. That's the role of the state. To argue that the state should not intrude into these fears is to seem callous and uncaring and unjust, abnormal. The idea that men are called to provide and care for and protect women is deemed weird and retrogressive. Sex is simply a social construction, and anything different is strange. Worldliness is whatever makes sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. That's the case when there are new and shifting plausibility structures. So how do we Christians denormalize godless plausibility structures and renormalize godly plausibility structures? First, consider our families. Parents, teach your children that God's ways are the normal, ordinary, routine ways. 
It's normal to love and trust the triune God. It's normal to obey his word as believers. It's normal to follow Jesus Christ. It's normal to relish the gospel. It's normal to attend his house. Note carefully. Don't instruct your children that God's ways are correct, but that they are strange, unique, and extraordinary. They're not. Don't teach your children to be on the defensive. When teenage friends tempt them to sexual immorality, train them in in this kind of response. No, that's bizarre. That's weird. Why would I want to do that? Train your children to denormalize ungodliness. It's unregenerate, unrepentant sinners who are abnormal and twisted, not devout Christians. God's ways are the normal ways. We live in a God-rigged universe. That should be a great source of comfort. The present ungodly plausibility structures will collapse because God created the universe that won't forever sustain ungodliness. The operating system is rigged against evil. Now, they can wreak havoc along the way. Sin always does, doesn't it? But they can't succeed. This social ungodliness around us will end because it must end. You can't violate God's moral laws and succeed any more than you can violate his physical laws, like gravity and thermodynamics, and succeed. The one is is as inviolable as the other. A skeptic once chided an older colleague of mine, you Christians don't live in the real world. And he responded, I'll never forget, the real world hasn't existed since Genesis 3. Actually, the real world exists in Christian families and Christian churches like this one and Christian schools and, yes, Christian societies. That's the real world. Our job is gradually, by the power of the Spirit of God, to replace the surrounding artificial, abnormal, ungodly world with the real world. As Morpheus told Neo when he rescued him from the Matrix, welcome to the real world. Second, let's consider our churches. Churches should be a haven for godly plausibility structures. The objective of the church should never be to adapt itself to the culture. That's just utterly silly. It's an act of apostasy. And it's not just an act of apostasy. It's just stupid. (coughs) To do that is to gradually adopt an artificial, abnormal, unreal world. The church should stand out in stark contrast because it stands for what is normal. The job of pastors elders is to model and lead not so much an alternative culture but a normal culture the church is the institutional expression of the christian plausibility structure the church should be a shining example of normality jesus is the only way his word is truth god alone deserves worship music should glorify him The gospel is mankind's only hope. Sexual fidelity is healthy. Rebellion is the path to destruction. Self-sacrifice is the way of joy. Delayed gratification brings blessings. The Lord's kingdom comes first, and I do not. That's normal. The pastor's task 
is partly to show his flock that they're different, not because they're strange, but because the surrounding culture is strange. Christians are normal, and anti-Christians are abnormal. Third, consider our culture. Christians who stand for godly plausibility structures in the church and family often draw the line at culture. They seem to be under the impression that society can be legitimately anti-Christian as long as the family and the church are Christian. This is a well-meaning view, but it really is to deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. God now commands all men everywhere to repent, we read in Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. Everywhere, not just in the family, not just in the church. Jesus is Lord of all, and his ways are normal everywhere. Don't be intimidated by pervasive but ungodly plausibility structures. You know, it's easy, folks, to be persuaded that godliness is abnormal because we're today surrounded by ungodliness. And we come to think that it's somehow normal and that we are strange or abnormal. That's a fatal assumption. When we think this way, we become intimidated. And even if we don't drift into ungodliness, we tend to become mute about it. But recall this convicting fact. We'll be held accountable not only for what we did say that we should not have said, but also for what we didn't say that we should have said. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, Jesus declared, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Don't be intimidated into moral apathy and indecisiveness. We live in a time when ordinary speech is penalized, particularly Christian speech. If you speak up, for example, for sexual fidelity and against sexual immorality, if you speak up for equal treatment in the law of sexes and races and against hiring and admissions quotas and affirmative action and, quote, white privilege, if you speak up for private property and against state socialism and political redistribution, you might get shouted down. You might lose your job. You might lose friends, alleged friends. But the cost of keeping quiet is losing our culture and nation. Never forget, you and God make a majority in your community. God doesn't count heads. He counts obedience. If there's palpable evil and you're exposed to it and it comes in your path and there are people around you whom you can influence, speak up. You say, well, someone might be offended. That's right. Sexual immorality is evil. Say so. Abortion is evil. Say so. Socialism is evil. Say so. Multiculturalism is evil. Say so. Cultural Marxism, like we saw in the left and Democratic Party at the Kavanaugh hearings, is evil. Say so. Don't say, well, people might be turned off. Yeah. We call that conviction over sin. The people might be very upset and get angry with me. Yes. It's called the Holy Spirit working in their resistance. Use your influence to turn people toward godly plausibility structures. Conclude with a word of encouragement here. Your influence in mine is greater than we know. You know, many people around us disagree with this 
overarching, ungodly plausibility structure I've talked about today. But they feel intimidated. They feel in such a minority. They feel useless to oppose it. They're timid. They're not evil, but they feel alone. All they need is for someone bold enough nearby to speak the truth charitably. And they'll say, what do you know? That's right. I'm not the only one that recognizes this. And it will give them great courage to stand for the truth. And then they'll rally to this godly plausibility structure. You and I can influence many people around us, not just family, not just friends and church members and colleagues and acquaintances, even others. They might not quite be a silent majority, but they're a strong silent minority that God can use to reverse the evils in society. Our job is to declare the truth boldly and to give them a banner toward which to rally. Give people around you a banner, a godly banner toward which to rally. So then, the deep state is not our deepest problem. The deep culture is our deepest problem. Deep culture travels everywhere and affects everything. Our task over time is to replace deep, ungodly culture with deep, godly culture. All right, I will stop there. We'll take questions in a minute, but... Your pastor asked me to say just a little about CCL. So be thinking of some uh, really good questions. But I mean, still listen to me when I'm talking about CCL. So the Center for Cultural Leadership is hard to believe. has been around, I think, 17 years now. It's a Christian think tank. Don't let that intimidate you. Uh, It's a group of uh, Christian thinkers whose goal is to speak uh, and write uh, and preach and teach and influence others to influence, influence Christians specifically to influence our culture in a distinctly Christian way. There are a lot of ministries and many good ones that believe in reviving the family, of having, of having strong individuals giving their lives to God, of a reformation in the church. That's all necessary. But beyond that, uh, we at CCL believe that the culture out there should reflect the glory of God and should reflect God's truth, his plausibility structure, in his revelation. So our goal is to write and speak and influence Christians. So whatever area of life they're in, I don't care whether they're writing code for a living, or working in a Christian school, or teaching in a university, or as a salesman, repairing automobiles. I don't care if they're picking up trash along the street. They're doing this in a distinctly Christian way for the glory of God, and influencing others around them to do things according to to the Word of God. This means we believe that this area culture out there is not religiously neutral. It's not as though, well, there shouldn't be any religion at all out there. It should just be in here. There's no vacuum. There's no vacuum whatsoever. Religion of some kind always rushes in when there is a vacuum. So secularism and paganism is now the religion, the, is the religion that is governing our culture. Our job, by God's grace, is to reverse that. So, some of you know, your friends on Facebook, our, our website is Christian Culture, Christian Culture, written solidly, dot com. Have a number of just books and articles, and uh, we do various conferences and so on. So we're, we basically are uh, talking heads that to talk, I believe and I pray, according to the Word of God, to influence Christians 
in all areas of life to bring this society and culture eventually under Christ's authority. So I can talk more about that. But now, are there any questions, perhaps, or comments about the presentation on deep culture today? Yes or here, and then to Michael. And uh, in, in your opinion, is our United States Constitution a strong example of uh, plausibility structure? That's a very good question. <clears throat> Uh, the question is, our, is our U.S. Constitution an example of a godly plausibility structure? I would put it this way. It is a reflection of a godly plausibility structure at the time. Uh, it's not explicitly Christian, and it really didn't have to be, because all of the founders were not Christian, but all of them were influenced, either Christian or influenced greatly by Protestant Christianity. So the document they produced is essentially in harmony with the Bible. That's an outstanding question. By the way, if you want to know why there is so much conflict in the country today and so much battle, one reason is that our founders shaped a society in favor of Christianity. And they even said so. They said our nation was made only for a Christian, a religious, and a Christian people. So all of our institutions, basic institutions, the courts and so on, all of that was devised for a Christian people. But as our population has drifted away from Christianity, now we have just kind of... New wine in the biblical, new wine in old bottles. Our institutions were designed for a Christian people, but now they've been filled with secularists and pagans. And that's why there's this constant conflict. But yes, the Constitution is a great document. I don't think there's probably ever been uh, an uninspired political document as great as our Constitution. It's a remarkable, remarkable reflection of a Christian plausibility structure. And it created and sustained one. Excellent. I think Michael was next. Yes, sir. Give me your best one. <laughs> um, the LGBT folks, a lot of them argue that they are inherently born that way. And so how would you answer that, uh, that argument in favor, that they use in favor of their behavior and conduct? Yeah, there's, by the way, there's not clear scientific evidence of that. But this is, I want, want you to understand this. <laughs> Even if that were true, that does not absolve them and say it's all right to live the way you want to live. You're a Christian here. You believe in original sin, right? Don't you believe we're born into sin? And some will say, well, I was born that way. But then they will also say, God made me that way. Those are two very separate things. Even if you were born that way, that doesn't mean God made you that way. What's the intervening fact that changes all of this? Sin. So I'm not acknowledging that people are born that way, but... If they happen to be born with a predisposition, well, frankly, all of us are born with a predisposition to what? Sin. And that's why people need the gospel. I can't say, well, you know what? I was born with this predisposition to rape. So shouldn't I just be allowed to go out and rape women? Well, no, people would say, that's just disgusting. That's horrible. You have to keep that in check. Well, the same thing is true if it were the case that people were born with a sort of, quote, homosexual gene, which science and genetics has not proven to be correct. Other questions? Those are excellent. Yes, sir?
which means then that if we're going to take back the culture, it could also be something that would take some time in and of itself. Oh, that's a great question. I mean, we could say that it really began in Genesis 3 with the fall, right? We could go back along. Uh, so you had ancient pagan cultures everywhere, uh, except among the Hebrews. Of course, God called them and gave them his word, a godly plausibility structure. Gave rise to the Messiah who came, and gradually Christianity came into the world and influenced Western civilization. And a godly, not perfect, but godly plausibility structure. The biggest attack on that was starting in the 18th, late 17th century with the European, you may have heard of the Enlightenment, that man's reason and experience is the standard, and then came Romanticism. You're right, it's taken a long time, hundreds of years to get where we are today, and I do believe it's not going to take a short time to restore that plausibility structure. The thing is, uh, Christians often are given to spiritual instant gratification, you know, if they don't elect just the person they want to elect, let's say even in politics, the next time, oh, they throw up their hands in despair. Oh, no, it's terrible. You know, let's give up. Jesus is coming soon, so let's just stop. But I think that's a huge mistake. We may not see and probably will not see a restoration of a godly plausibility structure in our lifetime. But it's a very good chance our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren will. Uh, our forefathers understood this so much better than we did. They built for the future. How many of you have been to England or maybe the continent and seen some of the remarkable cathedrals that took hundreds and hundreds of years to build? Why would somebody want to build a church that took hundreds of years to build? They wouldn't see it finished in their own lifetime. Because they believed that the faith would outlive them and be around a long time after they were gone. We need to restore that under that historical understanding of God's work in human history and not just be centered on what he's going to do in my lifetime. Excellent question. So yes, it will take time. Now, God can unleash his spirit and do things instantaneously. He can do that, but he often chooses not to. He often chooses to take time to do it. Excellent. Other questions? See, Doug, we have till about what? When should about 1030? 1030? Okay. Time for a few more questions. Yes, sir, and then this lady over here. Yes, sir. So last night, my family and I went and watched uh, a new version of Grinch, and uh, couldn't help but notice there's some significant differences with the new version and Reminds me that uh, of the role of uh, people who create young people movies, and uh, what's their role with the uh, the shift that you're describing, and how do we like that? Are you yes, it is deep. Boy, that's a great point. Um, we're talking about the president uh, and politicians having power. I think the people that write movie scripts actually might have much more power than politicians in this country. Influence much wider group, and particularly, as you said, our young people. Uh, I haven't seen the new Grinch movie. Um, there were some, actually some good, basically Christian truths taught in, in, the, you know, in the, the original one. Not explicitly Christian, but nonetheless truths. Um, but my, there's been a, just a, a remarkable shift. Uh, let me show you an example of how Christians can influence... Um, Did you know um, that in the last, I don't know if it's so much recently, but mm, 25 to maybe up to five years ago, that a number of the writers at Pixar were Christian people? In fact, uh, people say "All, all, all new movies are bad. That's actually false. All new children's movies are bad. That's false. You see a movie like Pixar's movie Up, 
Um, the marriage montage in that is some of the most beautiful Christian-influenced movie making you will ever see. And there are other Pixar movies. Not perfect by any means. I'm not saying every aspect of it is Christian. But that's because there are Christian writers there. And if you have Christian writers, they produce Christian ideas. So uh, because of that, one thing that we did at CCL several years ago is met near Hollywood a number of Christians to put on a symposium for Christians working in Hollywood as writers and some directors. I mean, not the top-level ones. They're almost all unbelievers. But some of those down a little bit who will one day, I hope, be prominent directors. And What does it mean to work in Hollywood and be a Christian? So little by little, that needs to be taken back. And there need to be, of course, alternatives to that. People producing movies, and there are. The, the uh, quote, faith-based movies today, trust me, are much better than the movies of the 70s, though. If you've seen like, what were they called? Some of them like Thief in the Night and, well, you know, what some of them I'm talking about, they were, oh, just so lamentably, laughably bad. <laughs> Remember there was one uh, film um, that uh, Estes Perkle did, Well-Intentioned Man, God Rest His Soul. It was just a terrible Christian director. And uh, one of the movies he was had Moses depicted, um, as there on the edge of the Red Sea holding his rod up and you look closely and Moses had his white robe on wearing his black wingtips. <laughs> um, so this is not what we would call good Christian movie making. Uh, excellent question. Um, so if you have small children here, be very careful and sit by your children. doesn't mean they should not watch movies that have some negative teachings in them, but be there to tell them, no, that's wrong. Another fine Pixar movie uh, in many ways is, uh, and, and quite uh, Christian in its view, is uh, the original, um, is it called The, the Incredibles? Oh, remar- incredible movie. Uh, certainly not egalitarian by any means. Uh, teaching very important lessons about life. So other examples about, that's great, great question. Are there any others? We've got about five or six more minutes. Oh, yes, ma'am, I'm sorry, I forgot yours. That's right. And you use that argument and it doesn't, nobody stops and says, okay, we have to stop it here. No, that's absolutely correct. Uh, did you know that until I think it was 73 or 74, I might have that date wrong, but certainly the early 70s, uh, that homosexuality was considered a mental disorder by the secular American psychiatric societies? You can go back and check the textbooks. It's a great source of embarrassment for them right now. But you're precisely correct. If homosexuality is normalized, and it is normalized now, there's no reason that pedophilia won't be normalized. And by the way, already is. Be, already is. A number of scholars are actually writing about that right now. And I know people will say, oh, heaven forbid, how dare you? I've actually a couple of time, I mentioned that a couple of times online to flaming, flaming homosexuals. They say, I, I won't dignify that answer Uh, that statement with an answer. Well, the fact that you won't dignify it doesn't mean that it's meaningless. You look back historically, this is exactly how things happen. Uh, That's correct. People don't like to... People who are in their sin like to delude themselves that the sin will never get worse than the sin that they have chosen. That's just self-deception. It's a terrible thing. 
Don't let them get away with that. Never let them get away with that. Great point. Are there others? Other questions or comments? Um, so the question is, President Trump has a lot of flaws. How is a Christian with a Christian worldview uh, to support him? So my view on that is that where he, would be true of any politician or any president, uh, George W. Bush, who I think was a good, and his father, who just passed away, a good, decent man, a Christian man, where he's correct, support him. Where he's incorrect, say, no, I don't agree with that. The thing is, everything must be evaluated by the word of God. I think one reason that um, President Trump was elected, whatever one thinks about him, and I, at several points, have serious reservations about him, and on the other hand, greatly appreciate certain things he's done, um, like his, his judicial appointments, not just Supreme Court appointments. His judicial appointments have been nothing short of stellar, much better than Ronald Reagan could have thought of, because he essentially taken the list from the Federalist Society and picked from it. Wise executive does that. This is not an area of his expertise, judicial philosophy, and so he farmed that out to people who do know. Uh, and, of course, his tax cut and some uh, various other things. So praise him and laud him. But I, what I was saying is I think one reason that he was elected is because a, a large number, not a majority, but a large minority of Americans were tired of the just sort of leftist politically correct tyranny, which really is what it is, Leftism and cultural Marxism really does have a stranglehold on all the major media. Virtually every major newspaper. I mean, the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal is better than most, but most newspapers, and of course newspapers, print newspapers are dying. But uh, CNN, much less so Fox. But but Fox is certainly not a silver bullet. There are things on facts, Fox, that are... Uh, should not well, not what they should be. But my view, like you said, is support them where you should. And in many cases, I mean, what we cannot say uncritically is, well, whatever the president does, I'm going to support. Uh, support. That's false. Everything must be judged by the word of God. But I believe in many cases he's trying to hold up a standard that even if not explicitly, and he's explicitly aware of it, he's acting according to Christian principles in many cases. So that's how I would, good question, that's how I would answer that. Maybe one more question? Do you think that the time coming shortly that hate speech will get Christians arrested for expressing what's normal, what we consider our worldview? Ten years ago, if you would have asked that, I'd say, oh, that's just kind of excessive. But I don't longer, no longer believe that. I think that um, it's already the case in Canada. It's already the case in England. I know of a... Christian legal organization in England that had to get guys out of jail for, for hate speech. Uh, but yes, I think that's a possibility. And when that, if and when that time comes, uh, our answer isn't to be quiet, it's to be bold. So be bold. I don't mean you always have to be picking your Bible up and preaching sermons. I don't mean shouting at people's faces. I mean be wise, but be bold. If somebody asks your opinion, tell them. If there's evil in your path, I'll conclude with this. Amazing text in um, Ephesians, is it Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 5? I can't remember anyway. Uh, Paul's writing, have no fellowship. Don't have any fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose or approve them. That's a very interesting text. It doesn't say there, you have done your job and fulfilled your responsibility if you stay away and don't fellowship with evil. 
He says, no, in addition to that, you actually have to expose evil. You say, we don't take sin very seriously, but God does. And he expects us, if we're going to obey, to, if sin comes in our path and we have the capacity to expose it, we need to say, no, you need, that's wrong. You, that is wrong. Now, I know that's not the American way recently. The American way is basically, well, if anybody else can do what they want to do. If they want to be a homosexual, that's not me. But if they want to do it, they're free to do it. That's just multicultural nonsense. Let, if we're going to be Christians, dear people, let's be Christians. And if we're not going to be Christians, then we can live that way. Let's stand for the truth. Thank you very much.